didn't finish my Christmas shopping yet. I did. We just had Thanksgiving. Give me a break. Oh, hi. It's Pete Pomisano, and welcome to another edition of RLTP's Off-Road. You know, before we get started today, I just want to tell you about something that has just surprised and thrilled me. And that is the fact that this past Thursday's front page of the Buffalo News talked about the Ralph C. Wilson Foundation bequeathing all of this money to the local culturals. I mean, it's a hundred million dollars and it's in perpetuity. It's going to go on and on and on. It's, it's unbelievable. I mean, what Mrs. Wilson is doing at this point with all of this money that he made selling the team is totally unexpected. And those of you who are youngsters who don't know what happened, you know, back in the old days, we all just sort of, we all screamed and yelled about what a cheapskate Ralph Wilson was and why doesn't he pay his players and why don't we get some good players in here because he can't afford them and he won't pay them. And we were constantly, he was booed at his own football games. No one ever expected that when he sold the team, he would take all of the money and put this in his will and say all of the money goes into two funds, one for his home city of Detroit and one for his adopted home city of Buffalo, where the Buffalo fans had supported his team for all of these years. It's it's unbelievable. And I know none of the money is going to any of the small culturals. It's going to the big boys like that's any big surprise. But, you know, and, and some of that stuff is still to be worked out. And and perhaps this will free up money for some of the smaller institutions. I, I, I'm not here to debate who's getting the money and why and whether it's deserving and why some of the multicultural groups should have gotten more money. We all know that's true. They're still working things out, I hope. But still, the amount of money that's being spent, that's being allotted yearly, it's going to be an annual fund. It's going to be it's going to be something that we're going to look forward to every year and hear that this money has been bequeathed. It's I, I just want to make sure that everyone knows that this Ralph C. Wilson, and for those of you who don't even remember, he was the owner of the Buffalo Bills, the founder, one of the co-founders of the AFL, which then became part of the NFL as the AFC, the American Football Conference, and the NFC. I know, I've lost you. But th that's not the point. The point is, thank you, Ralph Wilson. Thank you, Mary Wilson. Thank you to the Wilson Foundation. Uh, boy, they are helping to do some great great things in Buffalo. And, and the other thing that it said in that article was that culture is an economic engine for a location, for a city, for an area. Culture is economic growth. Okay, that's the last thing I'm going to say about it. But holy cow, am I excited about today's interview. Joe Grifasi, I have known this guy for a long time. I'm going to say 50 years, roughly. And every time I saw him in a movie, I said to myself, Oh my God, I know him. I know Joe Grafasi. And he's one of these guys who you don't know the name. But when you see his face, you think, Oh, that's Joe Grafasi. I know who it is. He's from Buffalo. He and I went to Canisius at the same time. He, he's, he knows everybody in town, all the theater people in town. He's been around that long, and he's been making movies and, uh, and TV shows. He's been on, like, 
every episode of Law and Order, he's playing a judge of some kind. Anyway, he's here with me today to talk to you. And I got to tell you, this conversation was like talking to a, a cousin of mine. And we talked for, I'm talking two and a half hours, maybe three hours. But trust me, I edited it way down. I cut out all the stuff that really just was, you know, personal stuff between him and me. And, and here, here's a little game for you to play with yourself. It, it, it's a drinking game, if you like, or just, you know, just fun thing. Count how many times he mentions people who are famous that you've heard of, like Meryl Streep and Henry Winkler and people like that. It's just, and he mentions them so just in passing, like, oh yeah, and then Meryl was there and blah, blah, blah. And he's not doing it just to be a name dropper. They're just, just people who are around, they're friends of his. But it was a great interview. So please welcome to RLTP's Off-Road, Mr. Joe Grifasi. I don't know why I remember you from Canisius. I, we don't. Th I don't think we. I was just a freshman there when you know your last year or whatever. And I and I thought to my and, and every time I've seen we you on TV, so you were there in '67. Yeah, yeah. We, we overlapped, overlapped three years. I didn't leave till '70. Yeah, but I don't remember having any classes with you. I don't remember having any connections with like like I wasn't in part of the. I wasn't in the, the little theater or anything there. So yeah. I don't know. Saw you in the cafeteria. You've got one of the most recognizable faces. In we were in the cafeteria a lot. <laughs> I mean, I cut my 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 friend. I joke, you know. We talk about degrees. I say, well, my my wife my wife went to Yale and she graduated cum laude, mm -hmm. and I went to Canisius and I graduated cum latte. <laughs> All we did was drink, drink coffee, goop around, and just, I conned Father Canavan into letting me go full time. Uh, days, part-time days, which they didn't allow, but I, I and then I, there, from there after I had the best time of my life, I was on the GI Bill and, you know. Oh, yeah. So, so you went to Canisius for a while, then, then went to, uh, in, in the military? Yeah, I spent five years in it. In fact, there was a, there was an event in New York about 10 years ago at the Car at Carnegie Hall. So I signed up for it. Philharmonic was going to be reappearing at Carnegie Hall after 20 years of absence. Mm -hmm. They used to be a big deal there. So Joanne Folletta had got him back, back on the map, I guess. So I went there, and uh, afterwards there was a reception I was invited to. John Hurley was probably around your age. They're a real Canisius family. He's oh. the president, you know? <laughs> yes, I remember that. I remember that. He said, Joe, I was talking with some of your old friends from the English department, Dave Lowerman and Mel Schrader. And Dave Lowerman, yes. Dave, one of my favorite guys. One of my best friends. I saw him in August in Buffalo. Anyway, he said, I was talking to Dave, and Dave... And we were, we said, you know, Joe's got, strangely enough, talk about conning the system. Joe has a terminal degree from Yale and uh, from the drama school. He said, but we, we wanted to give him an honorary degree because we have a, in the bylaws says, if you just went two years to Canisius and got a terminal degree, we can give you the bachelor. But he said, I have a question. We couldn't do it. I said, no. He goes, no. You went there five years, didn't you? I said, yeah. He goes, you never got past sophomore year. <laughs> I said, no. <laughs> I had a racket go. I, I would withdraw every year from like two courses and only finish two that semester. You know, I could. I, I was just. I couldn't read. I was terrible. It was a very social. Our group was wonderful. I'm still very close with a lot of because the English department at the time was exceptional and accessible. And uh, so you know, people like Mike Healy and uh, my friend Nancy Hunt who grew up on the North Side and 
a lot of people. There's a lot of people. Greg Mayday, all those guys, you know. Yeah, Greg, uh, D- David Lowerman was one of my favorite teachers. I had him oh, as a, I tell in him my that. freshman year. Oh, well, he knows because I'll tell you, Joe, he came to see me in a couple of shows in Buffalo when I was oh, on stage. Wonderful. And I never thought he would remember me. I was I was a freshman. I took one class from him and I'll never forget it. And I I loved it so much. And he came up to me after the show and, and shook hands and remembered me. I said, how do you possibly, you know, I was a high school teacher and I remember you yeah. know, I have 5,000 kids, I might remember, you know, you know, a few of them, but just the fact that he remembered me, he's just a hell of a guy. Well, uh, you know, it's funny you said that because I was doing a play at Canisius mm-hmm. and he came up afterwards, him and his wife, Kathleen, and they came up to me after the show was outside and they were all smiles and they, they, they just loved what they saw on stage. You know, they, they, they really enjoyed that stuff. And from there on in, we became, we were best friends. I mean, I used to, babysit for his kids, uh, you know, and we'd go camping together and shit. Uh, so it became like, he was the best man at my wedding, for God's sake. No kidding. But, That's amazing. Yeah, he came to New York for that, you know, and uh, I used to I used to go sleep on their porch at night because I worked at Sisters Hospital and I worked the night shift and they'd find me in the morning on their glider. <laughs> <laughs> and they'd say, come on, come on, get into a bed, you know. But I see you all the time. You, you had a good run in movies for a while, but now you're and your TV, well, I don't want to get into that yet, but... You know, you got, when you get to our age as an actor, you have to be ready. A lot of actors, I, I used, to, used to make me confused, a lot of actors, by the time they got into their 60s, they get frustrated or bitter. Mm-hmm. Going, I'm going, dude, look at television. They're not selling soap to people our age. You right. know, the demographic is 18 to 32 women. That's the, that's the, uh, that's the target audience. So, you know, they may have a grandfather or an uncle in, but that's going to be a very occasional thing. You know what I'm saying? Sure, sure. So you've got to be ready for that. You can't sit around going, why? you know, I can't, well, you know, grousing about why I'm not doing my Lear. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> because there's going to be one guy doing Lear for every five million guys who you yeah, know, right. didn't and, get and, the job. And, you know, frankly, I don't want to do Lear. It's too much goddamn work, <laughs> you know? Yeah, but, you know, I, you know, the other thing we have in common is we both went to Catholic school. We went to different Catholic schools together. You went to Fallon, and I went to Bishop Newman. You, remember you went to Bishop, Newman? I went Wait to Newman. Man. Was was Johnny Biscaglia teaching yes, out there? Yes, John Biscaglia is one of my dearest friends. John John Biscaglia started teaching there in 60. I know. 65 or 6. Yeah. He was just there for my senior year. I, I then did shows with him many years later. I love yeah. the man. John and I were classmates. Th- that explains it. We did everything together. That's how I started acting was, and that's not the reason I started, but John and I were commensurate time-wise, and my whole awakening in theater was uh, alongside John because mm-hmm. I, I was green. I didn't know anything about it. I was a working-class kid, and I, I honestly knew nothing about the stage or any of that stuff. I remember when I was a kid, I grew up in Congress, which was near Grant and Lafayette. I would, my school was a block away from the studio theater mm. and I go by it and I never knew what the hell it was. I knew the name and I go, what goes on here? It was monolithic because it was just, there were no windows because that was the stage side. Mm-hmm. And I always walk by this place and I'd say, what do they do there? You know? Wow. And, and then years later, I, 
in high school because I was just really hyperactive. I, I probably had reading disabilities. I never realized it. I, they didn't diagnose. No, they didn't know that stuff. ADHD. They didn't know any of that stuff in those days. Yeah. Yeah. I could get anybody's attention if I wanted to, and unfortunately, that was my MOS <laughs> at Fallon. And thank God I had a few priests that didn't want to kill me. There was one in my sophomore year. There was one guy who taught English who was just a, a sweetheart, and he was he was funny in class. I remember he was funny. He was actually like he cracked jokes, and I would be constantly acting up, and instead of shutting me down or sending me downstairs to go get jug or whatever it was jug he would he would spar with me he would say oh stand up if that's so funny let me let me ask you this and he go oh and then he'd make a he he like puns you know yeah. so he'd make a pun and then so finally one day he said okay and the first time we're gonna with these awful readers we had we're gonna study theater what a play is it was like a one-act british play it was very you know, mm -hmm. in one of those one-act collections, I guess. And he said, uh, no, so read this, and the next class I'll have you guys, someone will get up and read read these. There's only two-character thing, I think. So he, he says to me, you're going to read. I went, I am? Yeah. Oh, shit, yeah. Okay. So now it's a serious play, you know, whatever that is. And I'm going, I don't do that, you know. I just, <laughs> I, I'm afraid of being serious. I'll lose all my friends. So I get up, and because I, I really respected him, I, I committed to it, and I read, and I read it, and I just, it was like, yeah, I started to see what's happening. I even started, I remember sort of almost like there was almost a tinge of emotion arising. Well, who knew that an emotion could arise from something on a page? Right. And I didn't realize what was going on, and he just nodded. He goes, he goes, oh, good. He goes, so I'll tell you what. I'm going to make you a deal. He says, i got a play coming up. I'm going to direct. He directed all the plays there. Father Griffin was like the moderator, but Father Letty was the guy who did all the theater. And he said, I'm going to give you a part, and you're going to get laughs, he said. It's a funny comedy. He says, you do that. And I said, oh, okay. He goes, I had to make, your end of the bargain is, you got to let me get some teaching done. <laughs> and I said, I get it. Well, he was right. I was so taken by this other thing. And then, you know, going to rehearsals and being with other people, it was a different social strata. I was used to the guys who were jocks, you know, sure. or, or always grab assing and stuff like that. Yeah. And this appealed to me, but and he was right. I got my first part. It was it was it was a, it was a, a surefire comedy role. It was Doctor Einstein and Arsenic and Old Lace, you mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. And of course, Johnny was in it. John John played a smaller part because he got John was like a leading man, you know. And uh, he played a character role in it and a small role. And Letty was great. It was like, first of all, he he had some kind of magic because he was he was a assistant coach of the football team, and he had this thing. It took the stigma out of being in the theater, jocks, you know, not never because wanted. he was straddling the line between the jocks yes. and the arts. It wasn't a sissy thing to do or something like that. In fact, he he strategically would get the guys, the the, the toughest guys on the football team, and he'd say. You're going to be in my play. And they go, oh, Father, what am I? you're going to be in my play. And you get guys like Bob Arelli, who was the all-Catholic guard, and he'd make him into a cop, and he'd come in and be a tough cop. He'd be great. Oh, yeah. So it became like a thing to do. And when I did it, it was like, son of a bitch. And it's funny because I was watching one of your podcasts because I was just catching up to what it is you do. And you had talked with Terry Doran. Terry, yes. I remember this. I think it was that play, the very first thing I ever did. I, could he have been? I guess he, I was trying. He could have been writing that. The Buffalo News, Buffalo Evening News, 
had a little review of our plays, you know, because we had a very good theater company. It was small, but it was, they did good work. And in it, he said something about me. Wow. And I was like, can you imagine being a kid from the West Side and being in the Buffalo Evening News? No, I can't. That's amazing. I mean, the West Side Times was a big deal. <laughs> if you got in the West Side Times. Yeah, yeah. You know, if they said, if they said, and his bicycle was stolen, you go, look, there's my name, you know? <laughs> Say something like, I think he said something like, an acolytes go to actors, Joe Gravasi. I was like, holy shit. Wow. Screw all this acting up in class. I can go to the, I can get big time attention. <laughs> But anyway, it was Letty, and then it was John and me, and John and I were inseparable for the next two and a half years. Oh, did you just meet him at Fallon? Is that where you met? Yeah. Because yeah. I also had Father Letty and Father Griffin at... at uh, oh, I didn't know Letty made it over to... Uh, yeah, he did. I don't know when he came over or if he was just there visiting. Griffin went first, I Griffin think. Griffin became a, he became a counselor, then he was a principal, then uh, Father Morrissey. Yeah. <laughs> Let me ask you a quick question. So, so after you got out of Fallon, did you go in, was that your first trip into Canisius College? Yeah, but what happened was I was smitten with theater, you know, and I did several plays after that. I see. A couple of plays after that. And then when I, I got into Canisius, I was about to go into my first play, which my friend Peter Hassett was in. It was, they were going to do Arms and the Man, and it was in the spring. And I was doing terribly. I, I didn't know how I was going to survive academically at all. Because I had terrible grades. I just, Father Morrow got me into Kenesha somehow. Mm -hmm. I don't know how he cheated or something. But anyway, <laughs> at the end of that year, the writing was on the wall, and my father was just being my father, and he was telling me to do how we're going to do this and do that and blah, blah, blah. And I was enjoying the experience. But so I just, I bailed on theater. I mean, I bailed on the school, and I had to give up a really great part in that show. And I, and I said to myself, I don't know where this is going, but. Where did you do theater after Fallon, in between Fallon and Canisius? Where were you doing shows? I didn't. I was in the service for three years. Oh, so from Fallon, you went into the service? Yeah. No, no. I mean, I went to Canisius that one year. Oh, I see. But I thought you said you were doing some... No, and then I just enlisted in 63. I see. I and see. I got the hell out of, out of the house for a while. And then, you know, I was really gone. I mean, in those days, you didn't even talk to anybody if you were overseas because right. there was no phone. Right. So I came back. And I was determined to try to get back to school. And, and it's funny, that summer, 66, I had gotten discharged. Someone called me. Oh, this is weird. A girl who was in the Bishop Fallon Drama Club. She was, you know, they didn't have girls, but she was from, her name was Penny Schnitter. She was really sweet. The ultimate ingenue and very good. I got a call from somebody, and it was her, to say, could you come out? I'm doing, I do plays in the summer at Rosary Hill. I teach at Rosary Hill. Oh. She was a nun now. And I said, really? She goes, yeah, we do a summer festival. And that is a play. Uh, I heard you around. <clears throat> Would you be in it? It's a two-character play. It's called Hello Out There by William Saroyan. And I went, yeah, God, I, I didn't know if I'd ever get back to this, you know? It was great. It was, uh, Rosary Hill had this wonderful summer thing. They ran it for like three years. Mm -hmm. And then it was funny because there were people there that eventually became friends of mine, along with this one act. There was another one act by uh, Peter Schaefer who wrote the, the Private Ear and the Public Eye. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. The... But I think it was directed by Darlene Pickering, and I think Jerry Finnegan was in it. Yeah. Jerry was one of my lifelong friends. Mm. We were close as close could be. And so I did that, and it was great. So I went, I got, that next September, I enrolled a day school in, uh, in Canisius. And right away, I met a group of people who were eager 
they were kind of outliers, you know, in terms of, but it, you wouldn't know these names, but it was like uh, Ilmars Purins and Francine Dombrowski and Jerry Finnegan and Mike Healy. And, uh, uh, you know, Mike was a columnist for yes, the he Courier was. for years. Yes. Now he ran Disney movies for forever. But we all had this really intensely eager group, and, and we did like a couple of Shakespeare's. We did, and, and then that next summer, the Rosary Hill thing was going again. And we put on a really a more grander production of uh, Spoon River Anthology, which uh, Jerry and I played the two males and a girl named Barbara Gorecki and Francine Dombrowski, who became Francine Purins, a wonderful actress, was uh, and Ilmar's her husband directed. And Peter Hassett and a woman named Margie Fleming played the music for it. And uh, I don't know if you know the Spoon River Anthology. I know a little bit. I, I never did it. I yeah. never, yeah. It's a long series of monologues, mm -hmm. but it's been boiled down into a full-length play form by Edgar Lee Masters. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that was like, we, we really were getting somewhere, you know, uh, with that. And uh, and that was sort of our core group for the next few years at Canisius. But, you know, I was still dabbling in, you know, I was getting old now, you know what I mean? I was like, because I had... Well, you'd been away in the service for a while as well. Yeah. And there, there were, the other thing that happened theatrically in Buffalo, because nothing really ever happened for me in Buffalo theatrically, mm -hmm. was around my last year at Canisius, just before that, I got in touch. I don't know how I got in touch with this guy, but Joe Krizyak, and uh, who was brand new. One of your people talked about him. Mm -hmm. I remember the name. Joe came along. He was at UB, and uh, he was a very interesting guy, very avant-garde, you know. And um, he said, I'm, I want to form a company. And I want to do some plays. This was in the summer of 67, I think, or 68. And he said, we got this space. There's a group at UB called the Creative Associates. Yes. Run by Lucas Clark. Right. Yeah. And he said, uh, he said, we're going to try to do something that incorporates them into a thing. Right. And, but here's what we got. He says, we have a space. UB has agreed to get a space that's the third floor of the Pierce Arrow plant. Okay. And they said, there's a... Space up there is a beautiful space, got a big dome, but it's still left over. It's like a it's like a warehouse. So he said, We want to make that into a space. I'm gonna do some plays there this summer. You wanna help me? I said, sure. The two of us would go up there every day, probably working in the middle of, you know, tons of asbestos we didn't even know. <laughs> we were tearing stuff down, cleaning stuff out, dragging lumber out, making this clearing this space and making it into uh, you know an open space. Blah, blah, blah. And that summer, he did two plays that we called war plays. Uh, and uh, one of them was played by, I was in a play called, by Mrozek. It was called uh, The Raft. Mm -hmm. And, oh, no, Out at Sea. Mm -hmm. And then there was another play by another anti-war, uh, Mark Medoff. Okay? About some GIs returning. Because, you know, it was, it was the period of the anti-war movement. So we did one of them there. We did them there in an evening. And then we, we repeated one of them at Baird Hall at UB, you know? Yes. So I didn't know what I was going to do. This was interesting. He formed a company called the Company of Man. And about that time, I was, I was thinking, what am I going to do? I've been back in school for four years. My class, who I love, is graduating. Where would I go? Am I still going to be an actor? What's going to happen? I'll never forget, I was in Klein Hands, and everybody was, was robing up 
and and all my yeah. class was getting a road and they were putting on the some of the teachers like Stan Vadraska had a beef eater from Oxford. <laughs> and I said Doc Warren, who was the man who really made sense to me and really yeah. cared about actors. And I said, geez, I feel terrible. He goes, what's wrong? I said, I should be there. I, you know, I've been spent all this time. I'm not going to, not going to get that degree. He goes, Joe, you don't need that degree. He says, bachelor's degree is the first step to mediocrity. <laughs> <laughs> so I was 26 years old. I said, well, I can hang around Buffalo. Don't forget in Buffalo, unlike what I heard and I knew, learned later from the seventies, there was a burgeoning theater. Yes. I, I might've stayed. It would have been interesting with all those places. But back then there was nothing. Right. There was, Neil Dubrock at the Studio Arena. That was it. And that was it. In Stratford and Ontario, which I just we used to parade up there, and we loved it, and it was inspiring, but I wasn't doing anything. So I was looking at uh, mag periodicals in the, in the in the Canisius Library where I had a work-study job. I'm looking at that, and I'm, I'm, I was looking for schools, and all of a sudden, I, I, I had to find places that would accept a person without a bachelor's degree. Okay. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I can go to a graduate or a professional program. I applied for the National Theater School of Canada, which, because they sent people to Stratford and I'd seen the work, you know. Mm -hmm. I knew it was very exclusive. And then there was a school in uh, Washington State that a man named Duncan Ross, who had run RADA, I think, or Central School, had started. And they said, you only need two years of college to get in here and we'll give you a professional training. And I opened up this periodical one day and... It was for Yale, and it was something about the Yale Drama School. I, okay. I didn't know what was going on there. Bruce Dean had just taken over a couple of years earlier. And I noticed, in the, I said, well, what are the requirements? You know, it's a graduate professional program. And I noticed the fine print that said, as an actor or a designer, you can be admitted to the drama school without a bachelor's degree. What? Whoa. Read that again. <laughs> yeah. They said, yeah, at the end of three years, you'll be given a certificate. And, uh, you know, and that's fine. I said, well, I got to lose. I applied, right? Meantime, I had never had an audition in my life. I went to Toronto. I had this, the National Theatre School audition. And, you know, I did what I did. And uh, I, I didn't get in, but they, only, they don't take Americans hardly. They take maybe one a year, you know. And, I, you know, I was green. But then I had this Yale audition. So I spent 13 hours on one of those shitty Greyhound buses that had no air conditioning. <laughs> and I was like, oh, God. I got up there. It was weird. I got up there and they said, uh, uh, well, you're early. I, oh, I didn't know where to stay. I stayed in the Taft Hotel. If that doesn't mean anything to you. The Taft Hotel is where all the famous second acts were written for plays of the Schubert. When they were, you know, we bombed in New Haven. Yes. In fact, the last scene of All About Eve, where George Sanders puts Ann Baxter in her place, it's in a room in the Taft Hotel, Taft you know? Hotel. Yeah. And, uh, I had this shitty little room. It was on its way out. It was like dingy from 1930. Nobody, it was like the shining. <laughs> and I'm nervous as shit. I don't know anything about this. I walk over and I'm going, yeah, it looks beautiful. There's, there's ivy on the walls. It's looking like, wow, this is the stuff I heard about. You know, I just used to like student unions that are pink stone. <laughs> anyway, so I'm, I go over to the, the school to where the audition is. And they say, well, you're early. And the guy that was working on the audition, he was a nice guy. He said, well, look, what are you going to do? I said, uh, I don't know. He says, I'll tell you what. I'll get you a couple. I'll get you a ticket for the Yale rep. They're doing a comedy over there. You can watch the first act and then come back here. Might be. I said, 
oh, okay, great. Because I, I was needed to relax. And it was great. I saw all these actors who I, I was so excited to see. I said, wow, this is what it's about. And Henry Winkler, who became a really good friend of mine, still is, mm-hmm. was in one. He was a student. And I said, gee, this is great. So I auditioned and I didn't, you know, no, I didn't. I was thrilled to have an audition. To me, that was like the end of all the world, you know. And I was in the library one day and I got a call. And the guy, Jeremy Guyton, wonderful British actor who was a teacher. Jeff, how would you like to come to Yale? And I went, are you shitting me? <laughs> I said, yeah. So anyway, that's that's how I got into there. But, but the funny thing is, it's severed, not severed, but... I, Buffalo Theater became only something I remembered from what had gone on up until the late 60s. And uh, I didn't know it. In fact, another story is years later, I was doing a play in New York at the Phoenix Theater. It was called Says I, Says He. It was by a wonderful Irish playwright. And um, it was me and Brian Dennehy. And there was another actress in it who was pretty new to New York, Christine Baranski. Oh. So... Uh, we had to go get lessons in, in a, we had to do a thick Northern Irish accent. So we, uh, Christine and I were sent to get an appointment to go see the voice coach down at Juilliard. It was Tim Monick. We went for our session. We we're doing our vowels and oohs and we're taking notes and we're walking out. And of course we're, we're at Lincoln center, you know, we're walking out and we're practicing, you know, and I'm going, uh, and I'm joking. I says, I said, that's the shittiest Irish accent I ever heard. I said, where did you learn your Irish accent? And she jokingly said, Cheektawaga. <laughs> and I said, you mean the home of the Jafafa Red Hot? <laughs> and she yes. flipped out because we didn't know about this. She said, oh. how do you know about that? And I said, I grew up there. I said, oh, my that God. That was hilarious. That's amazing. So, so neither one of you knew that the other one was no. from here. And the reason I thought of that story was, Christine, after I left, was in Buffalo. She went to Villa Maria, and she joined the company mm-hmm. of man with Joe Krizier. Oh. And they did all these very avant-garde new material. So, you know, she told me all about it. I said, what happened? I was always curious, you know, because I, I would have done that. But, you know, she told me what it was like. And it was important for her. It was a very important beginning for her, so. Yeah, I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was. Well, you know, then I, well, I also read that you, you got your MFA from from Yale, right? <laughs> Another thing, it's like, you know, when I was in the Army, I learned to cross a lot of lines and get, you know, not discovered <laughs> doing nothing, you know? You don't want to be caught doing nothing because no. they'll find something for you to do. So I got into, I got into <laughs> Yale, and I, I spent three years, and by my third year, it was, a, it was, those were popping times at Yale. I I wouldn't compare it to now at all. The, the rep was really dynamite. It was a happening place. There was new material. And I really clicked in my third year, Bob Brewstein, Robert Brewstein really wanted me in the rep. And I was still a student. So he, he put me in six shows in the rep that year. And he said to me, why don't you come back next year and, and be part of the company? Well, I had met a core group of guys. We did, we wrote our own material. We did in a small cabaret and we were, committed they were from toronto so i said i'm going to toronto bob i said he says wow come on what do you want to do that for i said look i'll come back i'll come back i know i you know maybe in a year he said you know we can give you an mfa i said really he goes, yeah there's a provision in the catalog saying if you come back for two years at half tuition with financial aid you can work at the rep and get an mfa and i went all right well i'll think about it so i went away i was up in toronto i was working for about a year and a half and they called and they said, we want to put you in something and it doesn't start rehearsal till November. 
And I said, okay. I said, well, how will it work? And he goes, if you do it, we have several plays lined up that you can do at the rep. And by May, we'll give you an MFA. You don't have to stay that one time, and you won't take any classes. We'll just we'll give you some financial aid. And I went, holy shit. You know, I, I was just like, I was playing. <laughs> he was giving me good roles, too. Oh, what wonderful. And by the, the last thing we did in May was like this, this kind of world shaker production of Midsummer Night's Dream. If you look at the reviews of this thing in, in, the, in, the, in the national press, it was like off the charts because we did it with a full Baroque orchestra. They played music by uh, Purcell wrote music for, for Midsummer. He called it the Fairy Queen, but it was a blockbuster. It was just great. The, the, everybody was wonderful in it. I mean, Chris Lloyd and Carmen de Lavalade played Titania and Oberon. Meryl Streep, who was now in my class because I was back there, she was a third-year actress, a whole bunch of wonderful actors who you might not know now, but it was just astonishing, and, and, and it was just sort of a great way to go out. And, uh, and then they gave me the MFA. It was like the stupidest thing, you know, and I felt like <laughs> I had cheated something. I, I said, well, I didn't break Dr. Warren's heart because he said the BFA is the first step to mediocrity. I said, I jumped over it, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think you put in you put in your time. Yeah, that's true. I was, I mean, I was 30 by the time I got out of there. No, by the time I got out of there, I was like 30. Too. So, you know, I started late, but I was a character actor, so it wasn't going to do me any good to be. Uh... It's funny. I said to Father Letty back in high, in high school after I'd done one or two parts, I said, hey, Father, what about doing one of these, you know, leading man roles, kind of, you know, the guy who talks to the girl or something. Mm -hmm. I'm always playing the guy who comes in, you know, with a snub nose or something, something that's with the accent. He says, Joe, he says, I'm going to tell you something. Character actors always eat. <laughs> he says, you won't miss a meal. And I said, okay, whatever. He was right. I haven't missed a meal. <laughs> He's right about that. So right. It was yeah. a great thing to hear. You know, it was like, you know. But anyway, that, that's how I got around with that MFA shit. Well, th but then right from Yale, you, you started working steadily, right? I was fortunate. I mean, when I went up to Toronto, we, we were working for 100 bucks a week, but I was, I was the happiest man in the world because we were breaking new ground. And, and the Toronto press picked up on us, too. So... Then, while I was up in Toronto, I mean, I got a call. I got the call from Yale. I went back to Yale, but then, oh, I went back to Toronto because I was going to live up there. I was going to become a landed immigrant and do theater in Canada, as far as I knew. Oh, I see. I see. I should have become a landed immigrant because in those days, with the war on, if you declared yourself a conscientious objector right, and you went to the Peace Bridge, they'd say, come on in. There was no no questions asked. And I... I had I done that, I could have worked in both countries, which I wished I could have because it would have been a great opportunity. But you know what? I was lucky. I was in just before Vietnam. It happened while I was in, mm -hmm. but I was going to be getting out soon. I even tried to do theater in the Army. I remember I was stationed Fort Gordon, Georgia, which is outside of Augusta, which was it was a disgusting uh, assignment because, you know, I was, I was there one of the last years of leg legal segregation, which was... Yeah. I had two really close black friends, and it was just, I saw things firsthand, what was going on. But there was a theater company on the post, and it was a theater. And I remember going over and hanging out and trying to talk to them. And nobody was very friendly. They didn't want to know, you know, and it was not very welcoming. And I went, oh, okay. And I guess, you know, so I, I was going to try to use my time there to further something, but no hope of that. You couldn't break into the clique. Kicking the click, and I also felt like I couldn't I couldn't get into it in Buffalo either because 
there weren't many doors. I mean, nowadays, with all the great, you know, one of my classmates at, at uh, in high school, one of my friends, a dear friend of mine, Freddie Pezzamenti. Oh, Freddie. <laughs> yeah, and Freddie ended up running the Irish rep with, with Vince. With Vince, right. Shit, man, all you guys. And then they had the, the cabin. Okay, I remember working on that Duville stage in like 1961 when it was a rickety old piece of wood doing something scenes with father Letty or something like that, you know, wow. but, uh, wow. but I had no idea. And, and, I, and the other thing was they had a, for a while in Buffalo. And when I was back in college, they had a second company that was at the studio arena, the old studio on Hoyt street. Okay. They had a second company and I don't know if it was an equity company. I think it was an equity company, but it was just kind of like a, an offshoot of the main company. And, um, and they had a lot of the older actors, veterans working there. I went and saw a couple of things. In fact, Greg Mayday's wife was working there. Teresa, what was her last name? Italian name. Her father and my father were friends. I'll think of it. Anyway, um, I went and saw a few things there, and I loved what I saw. I saw two Pinter One Acts that just knocked me out, and I went, wow, this is really good stuff. Mm -hmm. That would have been a, maybe a shoehorn into the theater scene there, but that was it, you know. As far as I knew, Catherine Cornell was was dead, and and there was nothing else going. On. <laughs> Although I did become friends with Pete Gurney later on in New York, which is oh, great. Yeah, yeah, that's Wonderful cool. Guy. Yeah, we talked about. He talked about. Yeah, Joe, I grew up wasp, and you were over there with the Italians. I mean, you know, it was like I, I always wanted to be one of you guys. He said. Oh, and he was the absolute Buffalo wasp. You know, he was the. Yeah, but he stereotype. he was great. Yeah, and I never knew anything about that society. And I learned it. I, oh, no. The first time, his first play in New York at Playwrights Horizons, I'm sitting there watching the dining room or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. And he mentions West Utica Boulevard. And I'm going, what? <laughs> Richmond Avenue? Wait, what? Who is this guy? I know all these streets. It was the same thing when I when I was watching um, Hill Street Blues. When I was at the, at the Yale Rep, uh, I became friends with Dave Milch briefly back in 1971. Mm -hmm. I was introduced to him by Sigourney Weaver, and David was teaching, and he was a really interesting guy. She said, you got to meet this guy. And I met him, and then years later, when I was back working at the rep, he took me out to dinner, and he, he had, he had kind of cleaned up. You know, David had a big big drug habit, and that, that was gone. And uh, he wrote a screenplay. He said, uh, Joe, look at this screenplay. I wrote it with this guy here, and I want to know what you think of it, because I think I had already done one or two movies. And... Um, I read it and I said, this dialogue is just great. It was a little on the sentimental side, but it was dialogue was great. It was all about horse racers, which he knows a lot about. So I didn't see him for a couple of years. Now I'm watching TV, Hill Street Blues, which had some friends of mine in it. And uh, I want to watch it. And again, the names are coming up, the names of the streets. Of the streets, On the north yeah. side, on the west side. And I'm going, what the fuck? And I figured out <laughs> David was writing for them, you know. I eventually went out and did one, you know, and, and you know, we, we stayed friends for a while. Not anymore, but. That was one of the most fun things about watching that show. Every now and then they would throw in a street, yeah. a reference to Buffalo, and yeah. only only we would get it. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, the rest of the country didn't, you know, it was just another yeah. street. I'll meet you at the Armory Tavern or something like that. Yeah, go, oh. the Armory Tavern. <laughs> yeah, or something, you know. We're going to be at the Parkway Lounge for an hour, you know. How did you break into movies? Did you have an agent who saw you on stage, and or, or did you audition? No, I'll tell you this. Because, I mean, I remember you all the way back to Deer Hunter, and, uh, yeah. you know. Yeah, that was it. I mean, I had done television in Toronto mm -hmm. when I was living up there with my guys doing theater for 100 bucks a week. But I started doing commercials, and I did a couple episodics. 
So I was just getting the hang of being on camera, which I felt I'll never be suited for because mm-hmm. I'm just over the top all the time. Although I was in love with uh, we, those guys taught me a lot about watching old movies. We used to watch Warner Brothers movies. You know, in the days when black and white movies were on TV, there was no cable. Right, right. Five thirty in the afternoon, you'd be watching Jimmy Cagney and White Heat. You know, right, because they needed something to fill the time. Or eleven thirty at night. You know, sure. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'd, I'd see how do guys like Spencer Tracy look like they're doing nothing. You know, I would be kind of intrigued with that. So, I was doing a little bit in front of camera, and then. I got, came back to New York, and then Meryl and I had got out. We went to the O'Neill together that summer, and then the next year we were in a whole season of plays at the Phoenix Theater. It was actually a repertory season on Broadway, which never happened again. But uh, she and I were in the company. The next year I got into Happy End, which was a play they had actually done at the Yale Rep. It was the same adaptation. It was a play by Bertolt Brecht and Kurt Weill. It was a follow-up to Three Penny Opera, and it's got some of the greatest songs ever. But it, it died a death in, in Berlin because of one thing, because at the end of it, Helena Weigel delivered an unscripted pro-communist speech that turned the audience right off, you know? Oh, man. Yeah. It's, about, it's about people not having work and stuff. But the play is wonderful. It's got songs like Surabaya Johnny and the Sailor's Tango and the Mandalay song. So... While while I was doing Happy End with Chris Lloyd again, the leading lady, who was a nightmare, was kind of her show, but she was not, things were getting all screwed up. She was tinkering with the script, which we knew worked, and then making demands. So they were going to look for somebody to replace her. She said she quit. I think she might. And it was funny because the night that they were going to replace her, I had gone to to see a, a preview of Shadow Box with Meryl. We had gotten free tickets. She was doing something at Lincoln Center uh, Cherry Orchard. We were sitting there. She goes, how's the happy end going? Because she had understudied the role in, in, at Yale. She knew the song. I said, oh, it's a mess. I said, this woman's a nightmare. I said, I wish you were doing it. She goes, oh, I wish I was too. I said, uh, when's your deal up at Lincoln Center? You know, she goes, oh, we're closing in a few weeks. The next day, she and I had appointments with Bob De Niro. Oh. Just coincidentally. It was all coincidentally. And we were supposed to meet for a movie called Raging Bull. Oh. I remember I was late for rehearsal. I told him I'd be late. She had an appointment in the morning. I went in at like 1230, and I met with him, and he said, you know, I have to apologize. He goes, this movie Raging Bull, it isn't going to happen like we thought. It just went on the back burner because something else is happening. It's uh, I'm going to do what's called a deer hunter. And, uh, you know, I, you know, I don't know what to say about that, but, you know, it was good to meet you. Thanks for coming. I said, oh, OK. So I go to I go to her. I literally go to the show. We're running at night and rehearsing in the daytime. We're in previous and there was nothing going on on stage. I says to the assistant director, I said, what's going on? Why is nobody working? He goes, oh, Bob Calvin, the director, and Shirley's had a big blowout on stage. She was talking more of her method stuff, and he was not buying it. And they, they, you know, this was going on a lot now. I said, things aren't looking too good for them right now. He goes, no. <laughs> I said, okay, here's some information I want to give you. I said, I said, when you talk to him, he goes, I said, you going to see him? He goes, I can have a production meeting in an hour. I said, you tell him that there's an actress out there who just, he knows, because she just got great reviews, and she's pretty exciting, and she's done the part. I said, and I and I, I know she's interested in because she said that. Okay, 
within the next week, and Michael Feingold takes credit for this too, because he also put it in uh, in the ear of the director about Meryl's record uh, in the show. The next week, Meryl came in, and we opened, thank God, on Broadway with Meryl and, and Chris Lloyd. That's another story. That was one of the most injury-ridden and screwed up openings I've ever heard. But that's another story. <laughs> I digress enough with this. But anyway, so to make a long story longer, the deer hunter came about and they desperately wanted Meryl. They loved when they met her. Sure. You know, she'd only done one movie at that time, Julia, which was a small role in that yes. thing with Vanessa Redgrave. And um, I, I don't know. I think I might have been thrown into the deal. But anyway, they, they hired me to play this band leader. And then, of course, Michael Cimino added a couple of scenes and made it more something, and that was fun. So that was my first film, and all of a sudden, my agents were thrilled because I had just done a Broadway show and I got a movie. And so they started putting me out there, and I got I got a couple more films. I was still doing theater mainly, but I got two or three more films in the next couple of years, you know. The third one in that series was there was a uh, – Meryl was doing a movie down in D.C. after after we had finished The Deer Hunter. It was called The Seduction of Joe Tynan. It was with Alan Alda. I remember that movie. She said, I said, she said, what are you doing? I said, nothing. She goes, why don't you come, come down with me? And I said, okay, when are you going to be down here? Meantime, I have an audition with Jimmy Kahn. And uh, I meet Jimmy Kahn in the, the Hotel Pierre. And he says, yeah, we're doing this movie in Buffalo. He says, you know, and uh, <laughs> da, 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 da. He says, hey, I'm looking for a guy, play a sidekick. And I says, uh, so he said, well, let's read a little bit. So he read me. Yeah, yeah, I'll go. I said, oh, good, great, thanks. I, next day, I hop on a train. I go down to uh, I go down to Baltimore, where Meryl was shooting, just to hang out. And while I'm down there, my agent calls. Joe, where are you? I says, I'm not. I'm in Baltimore. He goes, well, they want to see you in Buffalo. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, they're on location. They're doing pre-production. This is hide in plain sight, right? Yeah. He says, I want to. He wants to have you come back. So I had a fly. They flew me from Baltimore to Buffalo, and uh, I go to the Holiday Inn on Delaware which ended up being my home for a while. And I go up meet Jimmy. We're talking, and we're talking. He, he didn't really want to read with me. He just wanted to talk to me about the part in this net. And he goes, yeah, yeah. He says, good. Yeah, I think he said, I think this is going to work out. I said, really? He says, yeah, well, I'll have my, my people call your agent, because you're from around here, and I want to give it a lot of local color. You know, I believe in that. He said, only one thing. He says, uh, go to work uh, on that Buffalo accent. <laughs> I went, what? He says, yeah, you, I want everybody to have that Buffalo accent. I go, I just spent 15 grand getting rid of it. <laughs> <laughs> really? Of course, all I had to do was go hang out at the Park Meadow or one of my, or, or the turf club for 15 minutes. And it was Comes like, right back. Yeah. you know, <laughs> so. How funny. So next thing I know, I, I call my mother and I say, Ma, hi. She goes, oh, how are you? Where are you? I said, I'm coming home for dinner. She goes, what? What do you mean? I says, I'm in the, I'm in the Holiday Inn. I had a room there. I'm down the street, yeah. Oh, I says, I'll explain, you know. <laughs> that was fun. I mean, you know, but I would say, with the exception of the deer, the first four movies I did all did terribly at the box office. But uh, And then I started getting smaller roles. And they were all good roles. I started getting smaller roles, but every movie I did after that was a hit. You know, they were like soft and sharp. <laughs> I wasn't complaining. I was still doing theater, though. I was. I, I got to do two more shows right around then on Broadway, and uh, it was fun, you know. And then I met some other people from. I met some people from Buffalo. Well, you know, Jeff Demun was a friend of mine. Is oh yeah, Jeff. Mm -hmm. you know, he's a good guy. He's a wonderful actor. 
and of course Christine. And when I was doing Happy End, one of the understudies was a guy named Tom Martirosian, who's from Buffalo. But but you know by that time things in Buffalo were ha- was starting to happen. I was like, gee, this is interesting. And I I started wishing in the back of my mind that I could get a gig at the Studio Arena one of these days. And now they're gone. And frankly, you could get a gig at any theater you wanted in town right now, but I don't think anybody could <laughs> could afford you. Well, if, it, if it was for friends, I would have done it for, you know. Do you know Sean Cullen? I know of him. I don't, I don't know who he yeah. is. Well, he came into town last year. To re- oh, Sean Cullen. I do know him. He's a New York actor. Yeah, yeah. He came to, to perform the show at, at RLTP, which is like a 90-seat theater on Main Street. It's I've done a lot of Irish theater. I, I worked with the Irish rep on and off. Freddie would love to have you back. I know he would. Yeah, well, it almost worked out once. I was directing by this time when I started talking to him, and I, I, I was there was a wonderful Irish playwright that nobody's hasn't broken out yet. But I sent him one of her scripts or two of her scripts, and uh, yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah, I would love to direct it. And I saw a few things there, and I always thought about you know Jerry, and I always admired Saul. Uh, he's a oh yeah, he liked to work with and for, and because uh, we both knew Joe Papp, you know. Let me ask you a couple of questions because I've really kept you a long time here. But I listen. I got nowhere to go. No, I had a, I had a miserable morning. I had to get tested for Law and Order just to get my costume fitting in three days. Oh, then I have to go back and a day and then get a test to start my shooting because there has to be this three day window. Sure. And then I had a Zoom audition, which is like a new world, and that's been going on for a while. This self taping crap. It's been yeah. going on, and a lot of the younger actors have been more used to it because I always met people in a room. Speaking of Law & Order, i got to ask you this question. All of your TV experiences, all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're Judge Rand, and then you're Judge... That's all I am. You're Bull, and then Judge Mata, and Judge Horowitz, and Judge Hackett, and you've made a, a new career, television career on Bull, on, on Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, on Law & Order. You'll, you'll probably be Judge Hackett again on Law & Order, right? Yeah, they're bringing me back. My, my character was an attorney for years on SVU named Heshi Horowitz. Then he moved, right, and now he's moved up. And then my friend, who's the showrunner, Tom in the bar goes, Joe, let's make Heshi a judge. <laughs> then I can bring you back more often. I said, oh, that's well, great. Whatever you say. But uh, no, it, it started years ago, and, and it, well, we joke among actors our age in New York, we all do this, women and men, and it, we call it, you know, it's kind of being put out to pasture in a way. But but it's a nice gig. No, it's a good gig. Oh, sure. Yeah, it's a nice gig. I meet guys in the crew, very few of them, who I worked with back in the early, in the late 70s, who were in the New York movie crews. Because in New York in the late 70s, you would never find a movie or a TV show in New York. It was like a wasteland, a desert, you know? Yeah. And now yeah. it's like things are jumping. But uh, yeah, no, that's, unfortunately, every so often something comes along, but like the, the Lodge 49, which... That small character. Yes. I love that character. I love that yeah, character. Yeah, what a show that was. Holy cow. Yeah, very different. Crazy. Act. But then there's another one. I got a call back today for one that I hadn't been watching. It's uh, You probably know it. It's called uh, City City on a Hill. Oh, City on a Hill. That's uh, uh, Kevin Bacon. Kevin Bacon, yeah. And a lot yep, of yep. Tom Fontana's one of the producers. It's a great show, Joel. Yeah. I, I'd love I'd love to see you in oh, that. Oh, we'll see what happens. I, I never count anything anymore. Yeah, Kevin Bacon plays a, plays a crappy... Yeah. yeah, crooked, crooked cop. Yeah, uh, yeah, like Buffalo. Know. Buffalo's got tons of hiding place. Yeah. Sight was all about those kind of people, you know. And we'll move on to something else. <laughs> Tell me about your master classes. Oh well, I mean, before I started teaching 
any kind of regular. I never really wanted to teach, but I mean, I started teaching, and then. Uh, but again, we're at that. We're at that age. Uh, I had done workshops when I would do theaters. Like I work at a theater, like the Goodman, or out in Seattle or something. They'd ask me to do a a class, you know, and I I I do a one to three day workshop with their students or something. They're training or young students actors, and then uh, all of a sudden out of the blue, this offer came to teach at the new school, which had a theater department, graduate theater department, Bob, Bob Lupone from uh, Chorus Line. Speaking of Chorus Line, my Aunt Mary Pontillo, she was a Gaglione, really. I loved her. She was like my second mother. She mm -hmm. she worked at Sears. She was a widow. She said to me, uh, Joe, you've got to meet Helen DeFiglia. And I went, oh, yeah, Helen. Hi, Helen. Helen DeFiglia was the mother of Michael Bennett. Ah, uh, I forgot about his name being Defilia. Yeah, yep. guy, and, and his, his his mother was Jewish. But Helen used to come to me often and say, "Mary, I need five bucks. Joe's been gambling again. <laughs> we can't pay for Mickey's dance lessons." Oh dear! So my Aunt Mary would slip her five bucks for Mickey's dance lessons all the time. He was at the Betty Rogers Dance Studio in Buffalo, uh -huh. which everybody on the West Side went to, and he danced with my cousin Carol Capone. They were a team. A talent scout came to Buffalo and said, we'd like to bring you kids to New York. And her father said, no. <laughs> Michael went. Michael Bennett reported to have been making $100,000 a week on all of his shows. Oh, and my God. And that was in 1978. Mickey. And, and Mickey became Michael Bennett. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. So anyway, you were going to say, you were going to tell me about the master classes. It, it, oh, you know, it, well, it, at, I... Uh, Strasburg and... Yeah, I would, I would go to the theaters. I love talking to young actors, especially actors who are actually becoming actors. I, undergraduate mm -hmm. school. I, right, right. Get me started, okay? That's where you start weeding things out because... That, that it's a detour. It's a detour to the real world of acting. And I know having lived in the academic world, one foot barely, and it's taking money out of kids' pockets like crazy. It's terrible. So expensive. But I would do these things for free, you know I mean? So I got a call one day from somebody at the New School for Drama down at the New School, and a friend of mine, she goes, Joe, we're having trouble. Uh, we need to get another teacher in here. Have you ever done I says, nah, I've done some. I've done some workshops. And I got hired the next week. I'm still there, but I only teach one class now with my wife. We co-teach a interdisciplinary class. My wife is a... She's a jazz, jazz, jazz soprano. She's a real musician. Yeah, I looked yeah, her up. Jazz soprano saxophonist Jane Ira Bloom. Yeah, that very impressive. Have you have you really pursued directing at all? I know you've done a lot of directing, but is that a love of yours, or is that you'd prefer to do that now and again? I, I wanted to do it a lot for for twenty years, and I did. In fact, I was at Chautauqua this summer for a week because uh, a friend of mine, you might know him, his name is Lewis Black. Oh, sure, Lewis Black, of course. Lewis, Lewis. I met at Yale. Lewis is a playwright. He studied to be a playwright. No kidding. Yeah, he wrote lots of plays. He wrote a wonderful play. A full length that we went to work on some years ago and completely reshaped it. Same idea, and it played a lot of theaters. I actually be great. It would be a good show for Buffalo. It's got a lot of the same values in it. But uh, this summer they wanted to read another one of his plays at Chautauqua, and uh, so I, I directed it with my friend Marklin Baker, and he, he and I performed it. We did a class, like a master class on uh, film work. So I'm still directing, but you know, I want to act more now. I, I... Directing's a, lo a lot of work. I've directed a few shows in Buffalo, and so every now and then it's nice to have control of everything, 
but it's so much work that it's... When you work with people like, you know, Susan Hilferty or some of the designers I've worked with and others, yeah, you just, let's talk about it. Give me your ideas because yours are going to be better than mine, you know? Right. That's how I feel about it. Kind of great. No, you have to. And some actors crave direction. Others, you got to walk a, a different tightrope. Yeah, and there's a trick to the psychology of getting actors to really, because ultimately you're going to leave the theater and they're going to be up there. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, like uh, somebody described uh, directing as a, a job of elimination. When you finally make yourself by the last rehearsal or the last preview, you make yourself irrelevant, you've done your job right. You know? That's right. That's right. Well, listen, Joe, I'm going to let you go. I feel like I feel like we're brothers or at least cousins. And I felt like that for a long time. I said, this guy and I have to be. Two hours. Yeah, we've been uh, two hours. That's pretty good. Good talk. It was great. Um, I hope we should continue success. Thank you very much, Joe. I really appreciate it. This <laughs> I had a great time talking to you. And again, I feel like I was talking to a cousin or I feel like we, you know, we grew up together because we have so much in common right down to where I live. It might have made more sense because we weren't able to get at a bottle of wine. Then it would have started going like this, you know. <laughs> Well, maybe we'll do that someday, and then that'll be a four-hour conversation at least. Yeah. Thanks so much, Joe. I'm going to let you go. I really appreciate it. I look forward to seeing your next judge role, whatever whatever judge you happen to be playing. <laughs> happen to be playing. Okay. <laughs> All right. Take care. Good to see you, sir. Thank you. I didn't literally count how many references he made to how many famous people, but there were a lot. Weren't there a lot? Joe Grafasi, friends with everybody you've heard of. I hope you get to see a picture of him. I hope you see his picture on the podcast website. And if not, go look him up, Joe Grafasi, and you'll say, oh yeah, I know who that is. Anyway, thanks so much to Joe for being with me on the podcast today. A lot of fun. We had a lot more fun than it sounds like, because as I said, I had to cut it eh, quite a bit. And, you know, and speaking of the Buffalo News, which I mentioned way at the top of the podcast, I want to say one more time how much I appreciate the fact that the Thursday Gusto now has a page dedicated to all of the theater runnings, openings, closings, and future things. And I think it's just great. It, it reminds me of the old days when the gusto was 40 pages long and you opened up the front cover and there was every theater listed and there were all of the theater stories and it's a Buffalo theater town. So thank you, Buffalo News. Maybe I should call them. Maybe I should write to them. You think they listen to the podcast? Probably not. Well, well anyway, listen. I got to go because we've already gone pretty long, but I got to tell you next time, I'm going to warn you right up front, next time, Tom Calderon, Tom Calderon, local boy, went to Buff State, <laughs> created a great local music scene with the radio station over at Buffalo State, and he, he eventually ended up being president of, of MTV and VH1, and he's been all over the country, and now he's back, and he is now the president of WNED-PBS, which is now called Buffalo Toronto Public Media. But you'll hear all about that in two weeks here on our LTP's Off-Road with me, Pete Pomisano. Pete Pomisano.